Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. So we have a little update for you. It is not a good one. It is all around the subject of reproductive health. You may have seen recently that people were freaking out, myself included, because of the Supreme Court. And you might have thought, what's happening? Why is everyone freaked out? Well, we are here to tell you. So here are two big updates that got people really, really concerned about reproductive health and freedom in the last couple weeks. So if you've ever heard of fake clinics... Basically, what a fake clinic is, it's these clinics that are masking as places to get actual abortion care. And if you were to Google abortion, you know, and then your zip code, on Google, there are actually ads for these clinics that would appear to be abortion clinics. And only once you went there, you would realize, I mean, I can't even use the word clinic. It's actually an organization run by an anti-abortion group and not a place to get an abortion. Yeah. Groups like Ultraviolet have been pressuring Google to do something, calling the search results ads and map results deceptive and a violation of Google's policy against misrepresentation. Google's previously promised to rein them in, but has so far been unable to do so. So what does this have to do with Scoutus? Well, everything. In June, Scoutus ruled that it's A-OK for these fake clinics to mislead people who are looking for abortions in California. The Supreme Court justices ruled in a 5-4 to decision last week in the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, or NIFLA, versus Becerra, that fake clinics were likely to prevail on their argument that the California law violates the First Amendment. What's at stake is a 2015 law requiring that licensed centers disclose to pregnant people all other options, including abortions. So basically, you know, if you walk into one of these centers, they legally might not have to tell you that abortion is an option for you. And the Supreme Court basically said it is A-OK to mislead people in this way because free speech. (laughs) Right, because free speech. So this ruling overturns the decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and basically sends the case back to the courts. So it's not a good situation for, you know, people who are actually looking for real abortion services in the United States. And it will have impacts nationally because now that this case is on the books— other states can go back and say, well, hey, can we lie to people who need abortions? So it really does set kind of a shocking precedent. Another big thing you may have heard, Justice Kennedy just announced that he is retiring. I remember that day when that happened. It was big f- news. Yeah, not good. Not good news. Not good news. Kennedy is no progressive crusader, but in 1992, he was the fifth vote in a ruling that reaffirmed Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court ruling from 1973 that declared abortion a constitutional right. In 2016, he played the same role in striking down a Texas law that restricted access to abortion. His retirement has therefore sparked both hope and fear that whoever replaces him will join the court's four conservative justices to overturn Roe. Long a professed aim of Republicans, this would not ban abortion. Rather, it would allow states to make their own abortion laws. But it would be momentous. For one thing, abortion would immediately become illegal in four states that have trigger laws awaiting such a ruling. Louisiana, Mississippi, North Dakota, and South Dakota. So just to be clear, if Roe v. Wade was overturned and you were in one of those four states, it would be immediately overturned. So you wouldn't be able to have access to an abortion in those states. Now, Trump has said a lot of things about abortion rights because he's a liar. You can't trust what he says, and he'll say one thing one day and a different thing the next day. But he's been pretty open about the fact that Roe v. Wade would not be safe under his administration. In 2016, he said that Roe would be, quote, automatically overturned should he be elected. And we already know that Republicans have been 
super explicit and super vocal about wanting to overturn Roe v. Wade in the first place. And I have no reason to believe that that would not be the case. Yeah. And his Trump SCOTUS pick is Brett Kavanaugh. And Kavanaugh has not written or commented on abortion in any great detail. But last October, he took part in a high-profile court fight involving a pregnant, undocumented teenager who wanted to obtain an abortion. In the case of Garza versus Harrigan, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals held that an undocumented teenage immigrant was entitled to obtain an abortion without having to obtain familial consent, as is required in several states. Kavanaugh vigorously dissented, asking, quote, Is it really absurd for the United States to think that the minor should be transferred to her immigration sponsor, ordinarily a family member, relative, or friend, before she makes that decision? So we don't really know what Kavanaugh's stance on Roe v. Wade is, but his dissent really does not fill me with confidence that he is someone that is going to protect reproductive health and freedom in this country. Um, There's an interesting hearing where Chuck Schumer is interrogating him. First, he says... If this were me, I would uphold the law of the land, and the law of the land is Roe v. Wade. But Schumer keeps pressing him and says, so you're not going to answer the question, like, what do you think about Roe v. Wade? Which, again, just leads me to think that he doesn't think very highly of it. Yeah, it's very uncertain. So we'll do a whole episode breaking this down, but we wanted to give you all a quick update in the meantime. Welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, today our our topic is abortion. Yes. And you and I are determined to make this politics-free yes. as possible. It, you know, may not be possible, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to ignore current events for a moment and uh, just talk about what happens when you're in a doctor's office to get an abortion. And to start things off, I will I will tell a little lighthearted anecdote. Okay. Um, I, I'm going to admit to Googling myself. I think we all do it every now and then. I do it every now and then. You gotta, you gotta check up and see, see what's out there. You gotta there. make sure no one's talking smack about you. <laughs> right. So, um, I googled myself recently, and at the bottom, when it's related searches mm-hmm. to the search term Molly Edmonds, mm-hmm. abortion Molly Edmonds comes up. Ooh. And I was like, what? But then I remembered, I wrote how abortion works for our site, howstuffworks.com. Right. So apparently, people who, I don't know if they're just looking for this article and they know I wrote it and so it goes abortion Molly Edmonds, but it's a common search term apparently. And um, I'm happy to be associated with this article because I'm proud of it. A lot of research went into it to take out the politics, as we just mentioned. I wanted it to be as straightforward as possible and so that's what we're going to present. A straightforward look at abortion. Right, because I would argue that the public is probably more familiar with the political debate Mm -hmm. around abortion than they are about the actual procedure. I think it's the most common procedure that's not actually talked about. And in fact, before we came in here, I was trying to find more information about therapeutic abortion, Mm -hmm. uh, which is when there's a health reason for terminating a pregnancy. And it's very hard to find any accounts of it. Um, you know, it's just not talked about. Yeah. And um, we're going to get behind the the arguments about pro-life, pro-choice, however you want to put it, and just talk about what happens when you get an abortion. Who's having them, why right. they're having them, how they have them. Right. Because we talked about Planned P- Parenthood way back when, but uh, and most people associate Planned Parenthood with birth control and abortion. Mm-hmm. So today we are going to talk about um, really what happens. And here's the thing. It happens a lot. Uh, just to toss out some statistics, since we love statistics, um, in the U.S. alone, 
Um, half of the 6 million pregnancies that occur each year are unplanned, and about 1.3 million of those unplanned pregnancies end in abortion. And according to the Guttmacher Institute, uh, about one-third of women in the U.S. will have an abortion by the age of 45. One in three. One in three. Pretty staggering. And worldwide, not just the U.S., about 2% of all reproductive uh, aged women have an abortion each year. So what kind of woman is having an abortion? According to the Guttmacher Institute, in the U.S., that woman is young. Uh, 50% of the women who have an abortion in the U.S. are under the age of 25. Uh, more likely to be unmarried than married. Lower class, the abortion rate for poor women is four times higher than that of women living above the poverty line. Uh, the woman who is likely to have an abortion probably has at least one child already. 60% of abortions are performed on women who are already mothers. And she reports not using contraceptives properly, if at all. And it's pretty spread across uh, racial demographics. 37% are attributed to black women, 34% to white women, and 22% to Hispanic women. And here's the thing that um, I think is important to keep in mind, especially when we do, you know, outside of the podcast, get talking about the politics involved in all of this. Abortion is one of the most common surgical procedures for women, and yet we are so uncomfortable talking about what actually happens. And that's one of the main reasons that Molly and I wanted to talk about it today, because you don't think about that. We know that abortion happens, but consider that one of the most common surgical procedures for women. Right. And so if you're, let's say you uh, take a pregnancy test, you get it back, you're pregnant, you don't want to be, and you decide to pursue an abortion, where do you start looking? Uh, a local Planned Parenthood, as we mentioned, is a great place to start. A family planning clinic, if there's not one in your area, you can contact just your OBGYN and ask for a referral, or maybe she'll do it. Midwives, nurse practitioners, mm -hmm. they are licensed to do abortions. So there's a wide variety of medical professionals that can do it. Uh, the Guttmacher Institute estimates that the average amount paid for an abortion in the United States is $413. And just note that first trimester abortions are less expensive than second trimester abortions. There are two methods for performing an abortion. You can have a medical abortion or a surgical abortion. And in a medical abortion, uh, you take pills mm -hmm. to expel the fetus from your body. You take an abortifacient, which is an abortion inducing substance, and the FDA approved um, it's basically a two-part procedure where you go in first to a clinic and you take um, 600 milligrams of something called mifepristone, which is followed by 400 mi micrograms of misoprostol. Which you can usually take in your home if you elect to. And you might have heard of mi mifepristone as RU486. And it blocks the hormone progesterone, which allows the uterine lining to build up to support the embryo in the womb. So basically when you take RU486, it causes that, that uterine lining to break down down and bleeding similar to a menstrual period will start to happen. And typically, you will take that first dosage at a doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a few days later, at your home or in a doctor's office, you take that second half, which is actually what expels the fetus in a process very similar to a miscarriage. It feels very similar in terms of the cramping, nausea, 
and uh, the bleeding, obviously, is very similar. So, um, and also something I learned after I wrote this article is they usually have you take uh, a suppository of uh, a, a sedative mm-hmm. to deal with that that cramping and pain. Um, and then uh, the bl- bleeding can occur for up to two weeks, but this type of abortion is effective 95 to 98 percent of the time when it's done in the first nine weeks of pregnancy. So there is a window after which a medical abortion will not work. Right, and it's usually around that ninth week, and, and it's at that time that you will probably opt for a surgical abortion. And uh, one of the most common types of surgical abortions would be a vacuum extraction uh, abortion. And this is actually the most common method is the vacuum extraction. And it can be performed for 12 weeks after a woman's last period, and it can happen either uh, with the fetus being extracted either manually or with a handheld suction device or with an actual machine vacuum. And um, the manual vacuum extraction is um, one of, was one of the earliest uh, surgical options available to women. And basically, uh, you go and it's, it's not <laughs> that much unlike a, a gynecological exam no. where um, you sit in the chair, you're in the stirrups, um, you will be, uh, a speculum will be inserted into a woman's vagina. Um, the cervix might have to be slightly numbed. And then the, um, the doctor will insert a tube through the cervix and into the uterus and then apply um, suction with a special handheld device to extract the contents of the uterus. And it only takes a few minutes. Right. And, you know, we found a few blogs on the Internet of women who have had abortions and were sharing their experiences. And these are very rare, usually because the politics will enter into it. But I did want to read uh, a description from an abortion blog of what this process feels like, a manual vacuum extraction. And this is from myabortionblog.tumblr.com. And I'm just going to read uh, verbatim what she wrote. And before Molly starts, I do want to provide a trigger warning for listeners out there, since this is a pretty graphic um, account of what happens. The doctor inserted the speculum and then wiped my cervix clean with an antibiotic. She then topically numbed it a bit and followed that up with an anesthetic injection. This felt like a tiny little poke and was mostly just uncomfortable, no less odd feeling than a regular pap smear. The weird part was that I got a little woozy and dizzy seconds after the shot because the anesthetic entered my bloodstream. She talked me through this, but I actually liked the feeling. Next, she dilated my cervix, but I didn't really feel much more than a bit of pressure. She then inserted a hose about the diameter of a pen, and again, I felt a bit of pressure. I could feel once the procedure started because I started getting some cramps, about the same as I would during a period. They continued as she continued the aspiration. There was also a slight tugging feeling from the inside that was kind of odd. I kept my hand on my belly the entire time and could feel my uterus tugging from the inside, like my belly was actually rising and falling. The cramping continued, but it was no worse than when I got from my period. At the very end, the cramping got really bad, which she said was normal because it meant the uterus was contracting back to its normal size. I think the worst part was probably the five or so minutes after afterwards when the cramping got intense and the nausea struck. I started sweating a bit, and my boyfriend held my hand tightly and kept a bucket in his hand in case I needed to throw up. The cramps were uncomfortable, like a combination of period and bathroom cramps at the same time, and for a second I felt they would never go away and I would be curled up in that room forever, but they actually lessened quickly and soon all but disappeared. So that's one person's first-person account of having an abortion. So that was an example of a manual vacuum extraction, uh, but 
women can also have a machine vacuum extraction. And the process is a slightly more intensive since the woman's cervix will need to be dilated. And that's going to happen either through absorbent dilators inserted a day beforehand or by inserting rods that gradually increase in size on the day of the procedure. And the rest of the abortion procedure is uh, very similar to manual extraction, except a machine is going to apply the suction that pulls out the uterine contents through the tube. And then sometimes after completing the vacuum extraction, uh, the doctor will need to use a curette to scrape the remaining fetal tissue from the uterus. Right, and a curette is a long, thin instrument with a kind of a serrated spoon at the end. That's the part that actually does the scraping. And when the curette is brought in, uh, the procedure might be called a DNC. And uh, this is you might also have a DNC just at a, a gynecological exam mm-hmm. if you've got uh, some sort of vaginal bleeding, if there's something going on up there. Um, and these extractions can usually be performed up to 16 weeks after a woman's last period when they bring the curette in to help scrape. So now we're at 16 weeks after a period, uh, extraction, and then a curette. Now once we um, hit the 16-week part, abortions that take place after that are really the most controversial. These are um, performed with a method known as dilation and evacuation. And uh, this method, again, like to, prov- to provide a little bit of a trigger warning, it is a little more um, intensive than the vacuum extraction methods. And I think it's natural that it, it has to be a little more intensive because we're past 16 weeks, we're in the second trimester, uh, the fetus is a little bit more developed but still not uh, viable outside the womb. It can't live outside the womb on its own according to medical definition. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the definition of the dilation and evacuation. What they have to do is they have to administer a shot to the fetus through abdominal tissue to ensure that the fetus is dead. Uh, They give medication to the woman, and as with the other methods that Kristen described, they have to stretch the cervix through rods or through um, dilators. The fetal tissue is then extracted to the degree possible with the vacuum that we mentioned in those first trimester abortions. But then because the fetus has developed, it's a little bit larger, they might have to insert forceps into the vagina and crush the fetus's head to bring it out or to break down the fetus so that it can be removed. And, uh, you know, the doctors who pioneered this concept said they were looking for a way to perform second trimester abortions that could be done in a one-day, in-and-out, mm-hmm. outpatient procedure. So it's a way to uh, abort a fetus in a way that, that still allows a woman to kind of leave of her own volition at the end of the day. And these are, I think we should mention that these make up a very, very small um proportion of all the abortion procedures that happen Mm -hmm. every year of that what what was it 1.3 million abortions that happen every year in the United States and a lot of times uh, dilation and evacuation abortions happen in the case of therapeutic abortions where the mother's uh, life might be at risk carrying the pregnancy to term now one last type of abortion uh, procedure that we need to talk about is certainly the most controversial. It's called dilation and extraction method, and you've probably heard of it as partial birth abortion. Right. This is when the fetus is partially delivered vaginally uh, in a breech position, and when they have the fetus, you know, a little bit out of the way, they'll make a out of the way of the woman. They'll make a hole in the base of the fetal skull, insert tubing, and use suction to pull out the brain of the fetus. 
Uh, this is so that the fetus's skull will collapse and the fetus can be fully expelled. And as Kristen said, this, this method's pretty controversial. It's been banned in the United States, except in the case of protecting a woman's health. Um, perhaps she might have an infected uterus or a heart condition that makes it impossible to continue the pregnancy. Now, as Kristen said, these are extremely rare. The Guttmacher Institute estimates that this makes up 0.2% of all abortions in the United States. Um, so that's that's sort of the, the range that they can go. We've gone from taking a pill and having a, a, a process very similar to a miscarriage all the way up to dilation and extraction where we're pulling out the fetus. Again, it's not medically viable at this point. It can't live outside of the womb, but, you know, then that's where the politics gets into it that we're going to skip in that, you know, is this a person yet? Is it not? Right. That's not our argument today. We'll let you guys battle that out, but... Those, that's the range of abortion procedures mm-hmm. that can take place. And even though the procedures that we've described sound very unpleasant, I'm sure, to our listeners, uh, one thing to keep in mind is that while possibly unpleasant, they are generally very, very safe. Um, in fact, a woman has 11 times the chance of dying in childbirth as she does of dying from an abortion performed in the first 20 weeks of pregnancy. Now, after an abortion, regardless of the type of abortion performed, women are kept in a recovery room for a few hours, and then they usually go home where they'll continue to bleed. Um, they may have really large blood clots, but a sign of a complication is when the blood clots get larger than a lemon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you might have some fairly sizable blood clots for a few days. You can. Some women go back to work the same day or the day after. Some women go back to class very shortly after. But the two things you can't do, though, are strenuous exercise and putting anything in your vagina, which ranges from a tampon to sexual intercourse that would involve vaginal penetration. So um, the, the vagina has to heal from this. Nothing, nothing can go up there. But speaking of intercourse and vaginal healing, abortion does not affect future fertility. And I think that's one, one common misconception that we need to, um, that we need to clear up that if you, if a woman has an abortion, it typically does not harm her chances of having a child later. And another thing that has been linked with abortion is a higher rate of breast cancer. But some researchers are concerned that the studies that link uh, a higher rate of breast cancer to abortion may be because the women who have breast cancer are so desperate to find out why they have it that they'll admit to an abortion, whereas women who don't have breast cancer may not admit to an abortion mm-hmm. uh, to a researcher that they don't know. So they, they haven't really drawn a conclusive link. In fact, another study uh, from 2007, it followed a control group of women who didn't have abortions against a group of women that did, knowing out from the front how everyone had had scored on the abortion card, and the incidence of breast cancer was about the same. So uh, that's right. Doesn't affect future fertility. Probably doesn't affect breast cancer. One aspect of abortion recovery that often comes up in these politicized debates that we do need to address is the mental health of the woman involved. Um, because a lot of times you might hear about post-abortion syndrome, essentially that after a woman has an abortion, she is going to suffer from massive anxiety and depression and guilt over terminating a fetus, terminating a pregnancy. Um, But we need to remember that it is not recognized by any medical or psychological association. And in fact, um, a study that just came out in January um, from a group of Danish researchers comparing um, mental health effects um, post-abortion and then uh, post-childbirth actually finds that just like with childbirth, you know, you you, you can't... um, 
you can't predict the mental health effects of either carrying a child to term or terminating a pregnancy. Right. In fact, proportion-wise, the women who sought treatment for psychiatric counseling after an abortion, it was about the same as the rate of, of women who had sought treatment before. Mm-hmm. Before and after was pretty much the same, and some doctors say that's because women who get abortions may be more likely to have other factors in their life that they need counseling about. They couldn't draw any sort of uh, line between the abortion and the counseling, whereas the proportion of women who needed counseling after having the child was much higher compared to the rate of women in that group who needed counseling before. Mm-hmm. And obviously there are all sorts of things that can go on. You're sleepless, there's postpartum depression, it's a lot of stress to have a newborn in your life. So they're saying that you know, in terms of actual mental stress, it's possible that the, the, the actual child might do more for you than than uh, than getting than terminating the pregnancy. And we're certainly not sitting here saying that um, abortion is better for your mental health than carrying a pregnancy to term. Uh, but we're just trying to make the point that uh, you have to consider each on a case-by-case basis. You cannot make any kind of blanket judgment on the mental health of all women mm-hmm. who become pregnant and uh, based on um, what they choose to do. Right. Now, Molly, we have gone through this entire abortion podcast without mentioning the two names probably best, <laughs> most closely associated with it, mm-hmm. and that would be Roe and that would be Wade. Because we're trying to keep uh, this conversation apolitical, right. and those names are so charged politically. Yeah, if there's one, if, if you had to walk down the street and ask anyone uh, f- to name one Supreme Court case in the U.S., it might be this one. It would, Roe v. Wade would probably come up more than any other. I don't know of, an, a, of a more controversial court case. Uh, it happened in 1973 and established that any legal restriction to an abortion violated the right of privacy guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. So that established that the decision to perform an abortion was up to a woman and her doctor, and there should be no government interference. But the reason we bring Roe v. Wade up, which deserves a podcast all its own, is um, just to talk a little bit about the history of abortion and its legality through time. And, you know, you'll always find people who say that, you know, even from the ancient days, people were finding herbs mm-hmm. and mixtures that they could use to uh, induce an abortion. They might beat themselves violently in the abdominal region. And in fact, some of the first laws that criminalized abortion were meant to protect women from doing this rather than to protect a fetus from termination because too many women were dying from taking poisons uh, to bring on an abortion. And one thing that we should bring up in, in terms of statistics in the United States, before Roe v. Wade, an estimated 1.2 million abortions were taking place in back alleys and in you know hidden clinics and things like that. And today, or even in some real clinics, because, you know, money, money can open a lot of doors. So, you know, there were some doctors who were performing abortions illegally just because someone could pay. And speaking of money, I think that one one of the most interesting findings that you reveal in your article on abortion, Molly, is that doctors did have economic motivations for advocating against abortion uh, because they lost a significant amount of income to midwives and private people who would perform abortions. And as a result, the American Medical Association served as one of the main legal lobbies against uh, abortions, against legalizing abortions. That was really interesting finding I found in a book. And of course, as always, we'll put all our sources up on our blog. 
Um, but right now, abortion is a legal procedure, and, you know, its status of remaining so is up to the political debate that we're not going to touch right mm-hmm. now. But we hope that in sort of just talking about the procedure behind the politics, that you understand this procedure a little bit more. Um, you know, like we said, one in three women have had an abortion or will have an abortion. So we know there are listeners out there who probably have. Um, as always, you can share our stories or you cannot share your stories. Yeah. This is obviously a touchy subject. Some people don't want to talk about it. Some people are eager to shout it from the rooftops, like with these blogs. Um, and sometimes that can be helpful because, as we said, when you Google it, there's not a lot that comes up because it is so tab- taboo, so political. And I think that both sides of the political argument would benefit from a clear, more honest understanding of an abortion procedure. We all need to be educated about it because, once again, Molly... It is one of the most common surgical procedures that women undergo in the United States. Exactly. So um, we welcome your comments. Uh, the email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. It'll be interesting to see if uh, the comments turn more political than we allowed the podcast to be. Maybe you guys will pick up on places where we failed in our ability to be apolitical. Let us know about that. And in the meantime, let us read some emails. <laughs> Well, I have an email here from Megan, and this is in response to our podcast on why women tend to be colder than men. And she writes, I just transferred to a cubicle workspace, and for whatever reason, I can't always anticipate my temperature. My tips. Number one, layers, especially cardigans, because they're so easy to adjust, unbutton up and down sleeves, take on and off, etc. Number two, scarves. These deserve their own mention, mostly because they make a huge difference if you haven't layered enough. Number three, fingerless gloves. Megan, you must be in a cold office if you are advocating fingerless gloves. Um, She says that they are a lifesaver. And then four, of course, warm liquids, coffee, tea, cocoa, even water. Megan, I'm just imagining you, you know, like huddled, huddled over your laptop with fingerless gloves and just a cup of hot water. Megan, I've been there too. Don't let Kristen, Kristen put this down. That must be a really cold office. But uh, she says, on the plus side, it's almost March, which means spring's a coming. Well, except for offices like ours who turn the air- AC way up in the summer. Yeah, just this cold. But then we just sit in the sunny spots. So we just go outside, Molly. We try. I have uh, another email from the same podcast about women running colder than men. And this is from Kristen. She writes, I noticed that when I've been lifting weights a lot, i.e. gaining muscle, that I am far less cold in office environments. And if I work out in the morning, my metabolism is up, which seems to keep me warmer. Along those lines, don't go hours and hours without eating, otherwise your metabolism drops and you may feel cold. Finally, you said that for people with seriously cold hands, their hands go from white to blue. Is this something that affects white people more than other races, or are you just speaking from your own experience? And this was a really good call out because Raynaud's does affect people of all races equally according to the research that's been done so far, which is kind of limited. But yes, it can affect people of all races. So when I said white to blue, that was just what I'd seen. But it may be other colors. And if you have an email you'd like to send our way, again, our address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. You can hit us up on Facebook, which we'd love for you to like. And lastly, you can check out our blog. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 
Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?